All right, let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you that in your kindness and in your generosity to us, we can be here today with your word. God, thank you that your love for us is so great that you have communicated to us, not only through uh, apostles and prophets whose words we have recorded for us here, but that you have spoken to us perfectly about yourself through your son and that uh, grace and truth have come to us through him. Thank you that because of Jesus, we understand the depth of your love for us and we understand the extent of your work to rescue us from ourselves, from the sin that we love so much and are unable to escape from. And thank you that we have been rescued by Christ. God, we pray that you would open our hearts today to understand your word. I pray that you would give grace to us as we look at your word, to comprehend its truths, and to put them into our lives and into our hearts. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We are continuing uh, our examination today of the book of Jonah. So last time I was with you, several weeks ago, uh, we started uh, what I uh, intend to be several weeks uh, here and there when we have the opportunity to look at the, the prophet Jonah. <clears throat> so you can turn there in your Bible. And uh, I want to just remind you of what we looked at last week, uh, before we, last time, I should say, before we get into the text today. Uh, because we, we spent our whole time last time on just the first three verses. So let's read that together uh, and then quickly recapture one or two ideas and then we'll move on. <coughs> the scripture says, now the word of the Lord, that is the the personal name of God, the covenant name of God, Yahweh. The word of Yahweh came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And you remember that we commented on two really important things that we, that we need to know to grasp the full picture of what Jonah is presenting to us. First of all, that Jonah is a person about whom we read elsewhere. That Jonah was a prophet during the reign of Jeroboam II in the northern kingdom in Israel, and that he was God's chosen prophet of national expansion and renewal. That God used Jonah to give a message to Israel at a time when Israel was um, really struggling with spiritual idolatry and problems, he used, them, he used Jonah to give Israel a message that Israel was going to become more powerful, that they were going to retake some of the lands that they had lost. Uh, and, uh, and so they did. God fulfilled this word that he spoke through Jonah. So Jonah was a prophet marked out in scripture of national power and renewal. And secondly, we noted that Nineveh, this city that's mentioned here, Nineveh was a word that had resonance with the people who first heard this, this story and this message. Nineveh is a word that might not mean much to us today, 
But like uh, a place name like Auschwitz, Nineveh was a name with power. It spoke of terrible cruelty. It spoke of brutal conquest and oppression. People hearing the name Nineveh would not have just thought of it as a meaningless combination of syllables. They would have thought of piles of skulls. They would have thought of flayed bodies. They would have thought of horror and oppression on their northern border. And so this person has been sent not to God's people again with another message of national renewal, but to Nineveh to warn them to repent. And so it says in verse 3, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. And so, again, we commented that this, this prophet of national victory cannot reconcile himself to the job that he's been given by God. The, the last job, that made sense, fine. Yes, I'll do that, that's great. But this one, it no, it doesn't work. And we'll see more about why that's the case when we get to chapter four. But Jonah can't, he can't do that. He's not willing to do that. That is a crazy plan. That's a stupid plan, God, that's never gonna work and I'm not gonna do it. And instead of heading north and a little bit east, he bails out to the coast and gets on a boat that is headed, as far as he is aware, to the farthest reaches of the earth in the extreme west. And uh, that's where we begin our text today. Now this uh, scripture has been given to us as a story rather than as um, some theological points for reflection. So we're just going to approach it that way. We're going to read through it as, as a story, as an account of what happens to Jonah, and uh, just try to explore a little bit some of the truths that I think are here for us. So let's pick it up with uh, Jonah sailing away uh, into the sunset. <clears throat> it says here in verse 4, But the Lord, but Yahweh, hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty storm, a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and lain down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came down and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Or a, a better capture of this in English would be something like, How could you be sleeping? Get up, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let's cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil or this disaster has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, <clears throat> Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Or a better capture of that in English would be something like, what are you doing on this boat? What's your business with us on this boat? And where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, 
What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of Yahweh because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous, stormier and stormier. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them, stormier and stormier. And therefore they called out to Yahweh, O Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. And then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to Yahweh. And made vows. And Yahweh appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. Today we are going to uh, just spend some time looking at this conflict between Jonah and the sailors. And it starts right here. I said at the beginning, Jonah's sailing off into the sunset, literally, as far as he's aware. uh, And uh, hopes that this is the end of his story. He's leaving, goodbye, gone forever, starting a new life, way over in uh, some faraway land, and that does not last at all. Jonah's plan to call his own shots and be his own boss uh, fails almost instantly. God sends, and this, there's this very evocative word here in verse 4, Yahweh hurls a great and terrifying storm that stops him in his tracks. This... Uh, is the only possible outcome for Jonah. It's not usually so immediate, and sometimes it's not as obvious, but the scripture is very clear about this. Rebellion against God will produce trouble. In fact, Tim Keller, who has a really excellent book on Jonah that I recommend if you're wanting to explore this further, his book, The Prodigal Prophet, writes... Every act of disobedience to God has a storm attached to it. And that's what Jonah discovers. Well, he doesn't discover it quite yet. He'll discover it in a few verses when they wake him up. But right now, here, he throws this storm on the sea, God does, and there's a huge storm, and the ship is threatening to break up. And the mariners, it says, verse 5, were afraid. These sailors would have been Uh, naturally, by virtue of their work, experienced with all kinds of weather. But they are so frightened by the storm that they eventually decide to throw the cargo, which is their livelihood, overboard to try to keep themselves alive. The idea of doing this is to make the ship ride higher in the water, right? So if your ship is riding low and there's a huge storm, more water gets into the ship and it's more dangerous. And so they eventually decide to take the stuff that is going to literally pay their bills and let them eat for the rest of who knows how long and chuck it overboard so that they can survive. And this doesn't work at all. This is totally ineffective. And so they go to the next possible uh, thing that they can think of in verse uh, 5. It says, each cried out to his God. So there, they are struggling 
They are doing what they can. They're all in this boat together, very literally. And they're doing what they can do to try to gain control of this situation. And while they're doing that, while they're doing their best work, and while they're praying all they can think of to save themselves, Jonah is down in the hold in a corner. It says at the end of verse 5, he had gone down to the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. These guys up top are working furiously and pointlessly, and Jonah is in a deep and stupefying sleep. And he is discovered by the captain, coming down perhaps to grab some piece of the cargo. And when the captain finds him and wakes him up, Jonah, the missionary of God, the prophet of God, does does not exactly jump in to help. In fact, Jonah's behavior here is so bad that I think it is appropriate to call him not a missionary, but an anti-missionary. Jonah is the anti-missionary here. He is the person entrusted with God's message who refuses to take it, who refuses to communicate about God, who refuses to be God's representative anywhere and endangers everyone that he is with. The captain comes down to him, finds him sleeping, wakes him up, (coughs) which Jonah does, wake up, And shouts at him to call out to his God, which Jonah does not do, you notice. The captain says, wake up, and Jonah wakes up and he says, call on your God. And Jonah doesn't call on his God. The sailors are still doing that. Jonah won't. He gets back up onto deck. Here we are in verse 7. The sailors have concluded here that they are beyond a normal situation. This is... This storm is so bad, they figure, that there must be something else going on. And so what they're going to do is figure out what the supernatural origin of this storm is. And, and they're right. that This storm is supernatural in origin. They're not wrong. And so they take these lots out, and the lots are thrown, and Jonah is selected, and they turn to him for clarification. They they ask these questions, just one after another, this kind of rapid-fire questioning in verse 8. Tell us on whose account this disaster has come upon us. They don't immediately grab him and throw him into the ocean, right? But they say, we know it it must be you, so tell us what the deal is. What's going on? What's happening here? What is your occupation? And I mentioned earlier, that question is probably better rendered, why are you on our ship, right? He was just... A little bit of extra fare before. Nobody cares about him. Now everyone cares about him. Because the lot has revealed that this is the person who is going to sink our ship. Where do you come from and what is your country and of what people are you? These questions are not questions that they're asking out of curiosity. They're not looking for kind of like a biography from Jonah. They're asking this because they have concluded already This is the work of a God. And so they are thinking if they they know where he's from, they'll know which God it is that's angry with them because people in their day and in their time would have associated each God with a region or a nation, right? 
So if they know what, what, where he's from and what place he belongs to, maybe they can figure out which God they've offended and they can kind of work their way back from there. So far, Jonah has not been willing to speak. And again, this is, I think this is a, a great picture of the anti-missionary. J- just think for a moment, if you're familiar with the passage, of the huge contrast between Jonah in the storm, sulking in the corner, sulking as the dice come up Jonah, right? Grudgingly putting the truth out there. Think of the contrast between this scene and the scene that we have in a book like Acts 27. Think of Acts 27. Here's the Apostle Paul. He's on a ship. His ship is in a terrible storm. The sailors on his ship are struggling too. And what is Paul doing? He's preaching and encouraging the whole time. Right? I mean, before they get into the storm, in the middle of the storm, it's like, don't worry, let's call on God, he'll rescue us. Right? You don't need to be afraid. And here's Jonah, just the, the photo negative of the Apostle Paul. Jonah is going to grudgingly explain the situation. He says in verse 9, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now, that's an important thing to say, obviously, because they're asking about his gods. But it's important for him to not just say, I'm a Hebrew, because we know from the historical books and from the other prophets that the worship of God in Israel and in Judah as well, at this time, was really compromised by the worship of idols. So for him to say, I'm a Hebrew, doesn't necessarily clarify which God he serves. Right? He has to add that on. I'm a Hebrew. Yeah, so you guys are familiar with me because we just sailed out of a place that, you know, is very close to my country. And I also want to clarify that I worship Yahweh. As a Hebrew and as a worshiper of Yahweh, the entire Old Testament up to this point, all of this text right here, will have emphasized the difference between Jonah and these pagans. Who are the people on this boat? Who are the sailors? Probably Canaanites, right? the people who had inherited the land that originally belonged to those who were called Philistines, these were idol worshipers. Jonah, as a Hebrew and a worshiper of Yahweh, totally different, completely separate from some pagan like an Assyrian. Right? Not here! (laughs) This is a disaster. And the words that Jonah is saying here are shot through with this absolutely brutal irony. He says, I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of Yahweh. Because he had told them, yeah, I am a prophet and I serve God. And right now he and I, It's complicated. I'm actually, I hate him is what I'm saying. Like, I'm not doing that thing anymore. What? uh, What? (laughs) 
and he's explaining Yahweh, his God, to these men, right? He says, I fear, that's a super ironic word. I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And again, we, we have to take a moment to try to put ourselves in the place of these individuals. 3,000 years, almost, separate us from this moment. And in the, the culture that we've grown up in and the thinking that our minds have been shaped by, when people say a word like God, we and almost everyone, almost everywhere, thinks of something like the God of the Bible. But that is not what these guys would have thought. And so when he says, I worship Yahweh, the next question for the inquirer would have been, well, who's Yahweh? Tell us about him, right? He's some kind of ancestor guardian, right? Like he protects your family? No. Maybe he's like the patron of the little valley where you come from? No. No, he, he's, he's like a warrior god for your little city-state, maybe? Because those were the kinds of gods that these people worshipped. And Jonah says, no, no, he, he's the god of heaven, right? So everything under heaven belongs to him. And he created the, the sea and the dry land. And I'm trying to escape from him. Just horrifying. And in fact, these sailors, verse 10, are horrified. Verse 10, the men were exceedingly afraid and they said to him, what is this that you have done? The word that we, the, probably the best word in English that captures Jonah's behavior here is the word impiety. That's an old word. Probably no one in this room has uh, had the occasion to use it much, if at all. But that word, the word piety, expresses a right relationship to God or even to the gods. In other words, here's God, he's out here, how should I act toward him? If I do that, if I fulfill my obligations toward God, then I'm pious. In China, there's a super, super important concept uh, that's often translated into English as filial piety or family piety, and that is how do I re relate to my family? Do I relate to my father and mother correctly or do I not? And so these pagans, these Baal worshipers, these people are shocked and horrified that Jonah could be so wicked to treat his God like this. And that's why they say, what have you done? This is really embarrassing. And Jonah, when they press him, because they say, okay, well, look, whatever your problem is, you have to give us a solution. Verse 11, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew stormier and stormier. Like you're the one, you're the prophet of this over God. So you better tell us what to do. And finally, after all this, for the first time, Jonah begins to show some concern 
for other people. This is the first moment that we see this. Jonah has no concern for the Ninevites. He's out of there. Jonah has no concern for the impact that his bailout might have on the people that he had previously ministered to. He's out of there. When the storm is threatening to tear the ship apart and the sailors are all doing whatever they can think of to do, maybe we'll throw the cargo out. Maybe we'll pray to our gods. Jonah's just not involved. Hard to imagine someone less like the God that he claims to represent. And so it is really something to be grateful for that there is this glimmer of concern. He says in verse 12, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. And then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. And when he says it will quiet down for you, and this, it's because of me that this storm has come upon you, we see for the first time some reflection on the needs of other people. Even in doing this, though, he turns not to God, but to the sailors. Do you remember what the captain said when he first came down and found him and woke him up? Get up and call on your God. And so here's Jonah. It's me. Yeah, all this is, that's my God doing this to us right now. What should we do, Jonah? Why don't you call on your God? That's not going to, you better just kill me. That is literally the situation that we are in. Why does Jonah tell them to throw him into the ocean? Why is that the solution that he suggests? Because from one end of the scripture all the way to the other end, the right response to God's anger is always exactly the same. The message of God's anger toward Nineveh that Jonah was supposed to be carrying there right now, the response to that, the correct response to that was totally obvious. Everyone knew what it should be. The correct response is repentance. If we, if anyone, has done what is wrong toward God, the Bible doesn't tell us, you better get your sacrifices going. You'd better take out your wallet. You'd better do these other things to make up for it. The scripture tells us again and again and again, repent, turn away from what you are doing that is actively alienating you from God. And Jonah doesn't do that. Jonah will not repent. Jonah is resigned. And, and there's a range of options. It's not clear exactly what Jonah is thinking. Maybe he's thinking to himself, I've sinned terribly. I deserve to die. Just kill me now. Maybe he's thinking, I will never, ever do what God wants. You had better just kill me now. I would rather die. Maybe it's something in the middle. <clears throat> we know from what Jonah says in chapter 4 that he is very angry. Very, very angry. But whatever it is, it is a far cry 
from repentance and trust. And here we have the brutal irony of Jonah sent to point the pagans to God, and he is surrounded by pagans who are pointing him to his God. And he will not look. Through the common grace of God, the sailors here are shown in a far, far better light than Jonah is. Unlike Jonah, they, when presented with the reality of their situation, understand and accept it. And that understanding prompts the right kind of fear. We see this word fear quite a lot here. It starts when the storm starts, right? The sailors are afraid in verse 5. And then when they find out who Jonah is and what's going on, verse 10, they are really, really afraid. Jonah's blasé admission that, yeah, sure, I work for the Supreme God, also not doing what he wants. Um, And now when they tell him, okay, you've got to trade my life for yours. Chuck me in the sea and everyone will be fine. Now at this moment, what do they do? Verse 13 says they hesitate. They don't say, okay, finally, yes, quick, 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 get them on the side, bye, right? That is not their impulse. They hesitate. And they hesitate, and it's very clear from what they say in just a minute in verse 14, that the reason that they're trying to row back to dry land is because they are very concerned about the moral implications of killing this man. It is their morality in the common grace of God that is keeping them from throwing Jonah over the side. And there may be more to it than that, right? A lot of complicating factors. But when Jonah says, it's my God that's doing this, so you should just kill me, they say, no, 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 no. We're not going to do that. Let's get back to land. Your God wants you, you know, not here. We'll get you back to Joppa. Everyone roll for Joppa. And that doesn't work. They know that whatever their situation, however bad things are, they cannot just take the life of another person so casually, especially one that belongs to a God. And yet when that God refuses to let them do their alternate suggestion, which is, we'll just bring you back. That's not allowed. They do what Jonah won't do. They call on Yahweh. And so they do that. Verse 14, they called out to Yahweh, O Yahweh, please let us not perish for this man's life. Why are they worried about that? Because they say, lay not on us innocent blood. That's what they're worried about. They're worried that killing this guy in this situation might amount to murder. But it seems like that's what the God wants. So please... Mighty and foreign God, don't judge us murderers. And so they they, uh, pray in this way. You, O Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. Their address to God, their, their prayer to God, shouted over the roaring of the waves, is everything that Jonah is not. It is a moral prayer, 
They, unlike Jonah, are concerned about human lives involved. It is a reasonable prayer because they can see clearly as they say that you, O Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. Jonah's here trembling on the brink of death saying, nope, 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 mm -mm, not going to do it. And they are grasping the reality of the situation. And it is respectful, which Jonah is certainly not being. So they pick him up, it says, in verse 15, and hurl him into the sea. It's the same verb that's used for God hurling the storm. Starts with the throw, ends with the throw. And then the sea ceased from its raging. As Jonah sinks down beneath the wave, God switches off the storm. And now... It tells us in verse 16, the men are really afraid. It said, then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly. And again, put yourself in their situation. Up until this moment, everything that happened to them, these are guys who are trying their best to do what they can. This whole question of Yahweh, it makes sense, right? But it's a best guess approach. Yeah? We, like, we don't have any other options. This guy tells a crazy story. This is obviously not natural. We'll just go with this. And as the sea calms down and the sun reappears, everyone is terrified because they now, now they realize beyond a shadow of a doubt, they have just had a, an encounter with divinity. That was a God. They, they just addressed him. That was not just them screaming into a storm, which it might have been, but no, it wasn't. His power and his will have been revealed, and it says that they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. And it seems likely that this is something that they did when they got back to land. After all, they may as well turn around and go back. No point going to Tarshish with no cargo. Because they've thrown most of the stuff off the boat, what are they going to offer as a sacrifice? There is question about whether these sailors are genuinely converted or not. But I think that they are. I think the text really presents that quite clearly. There are other people like this that we read about in the Old Testament. People like Rahab, you remember, who sheltered the... Uh, initial wave of scouts who came into Canaan and said, yeah, your God is super powerful and he's definitely going to win and I'm, I'm going with you guys. Or people like Naaman who came and encountered the prophet of God and saw a miraculous sign and said, well, okay, no, your God is obviously the correct God. I'm going to worship him from now on. I think that these sailors are the same. And I think that not only because of the words that are used here, where it says that these men feared Yahweh very much, they feared him exceedingly, but also because their vows and their sacrifices come after God has rescued them, not ahead of time. They're not doing these things to try to secure some provision from God. Everything's fine now. Everything's safe. Now everyone, we can just sail back to Joppa. It's going to be a crazy story for the books. That's often the time when people who make false or temporary professions just roll it back, you know, just forget about that stuff. But these guys do it the other way. 
Now that they're safe, they're going to make vows. Now that they're safe, they're going to offer sacrifices. Despite his best efforts, Jonah has become the instrument of the conversion of Gentiles. He tried to stop it, and he couldn't. Now, we are going to continue with what happens to Jonah next time. That belongs to the next section. But I want us to just reflect briefly here at the conclusion on this whole episode. Because what's happened here, this this second bit of chapter 1, is God allowing pagans to shame his people. Why? Why does God permit that? This is not the only time in the scriptures that this happens, but it's the most extended one. Why does God permit his people to be shamed by the attitudes and the actions of pagans? Well, I think it raises some important questions. I think that's one of the reasons why it happens. <clears throat> and I want us to just reflect, reflect very briefly on four of these questions. When we, in our life as God's people, are shamed by the way that unbelieving people act and think, what's going on? Or when we see that happening around us, what's going on? I think four questions at least come to us. The first one is, who does God belong to? Here's Jonah the prophet of national victory, right? And he is angry about what God, his God, is doing. That is not the right thing to do, God. Listen, God, here's the way that you're going to do things, right? You, you help us. You bless us. And in thinking so, Jonah is very wrong. Um, you might recall Paul writing in Romans, In Romans 2, the end of that chapter, he reminds us this. He says, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. And I want us to just stop right there and make sure that we're grasping everything that Paul is saying. Because in Paul's explanation, in chapter 1, he says, I want to tell you about sinful people. There are these sinful people who reject God in his ways, and they just do whatever they want. These are pagans. And then in chapter 2, he says there are also sinful people who act very religious, who are very concerned with the scripture, and they're also rejecting God in his ways. Paul's goal in this passage is to say it does not matter whether you are a religious or an irreligious rebel. What matters is that your sins do separate you from God. And so when he says this, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. He's saying there isn't anyone who actually belongs to God, a religious person who truly belongs to God, just because of some external ritual. Nobody really belongs to God. No one is really one of God's people just because he got baptized. No one is really one of God's people because of where he grew up or what she does on a Sunday or how she uses her funds and the kinds of charities that she donates to. Nobody is one of God's people because of who he likes on Facebook or what kind of art is hanging in his house. That stuff is immaterial. 
in terms of defining who belongs to God. The Apostle Paul writes, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. In Jonah 1, God confronts us with the reality that one of his mighty prophets is much farther from him than a bunch of pagans with open ears and open hearts. We do not have, as God's people, any exclusive right to God. He is the God of heaven, the maker of the sea and of the dry land. And everyone who approaches him correctly, everyone who fears him in truth, is welcomed by him because everyone belongs to him, whether they like it or not. Who does God belong to? He doesn't belong to anybody. People belong to him, not when they have his name, but when they trust in him truly. Secondly, what is really important for God's people? What is important for them to do? Here's Jonah. I said before that we can call Jonah the anti-missionary. And Jonah the anti-missionary inspires horror in the people who understand what he's doing. These are the people on the boat. When they hear what he's doing and, and what's actually going on, they're horrified that he would think that. Jonah still carries God's name proudly. He introduces himself that way. I'm a Hebrew. I fear Yahweh, right? But his personal arrogance, and in his case, his national commitments make him a danger to himself and everyone around him. I want us to look quickly at a passage across the way. Turn back, if you want to, to Psalm 50, or just listen as I read it. The 50th Psalm (coughs) says in verse 14, God speaks and he says, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Now pause, does that sound familiar? Because we just saw almost that exact sequence in the actions of the sailors, right? Vows, sacrifices, calling on. And then look at the next verse. But to the wicked, verse 16, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you throw my words behind you. And who does that describe but Jonah? What is important for God's people? It is not saying, I belong to this God. It is not some kind of group identity. What is important for God's people is that they are like God. God's people are only meaningfully so if we are like God loving and truthful and just. What's important for God's people is not being on the right team because God does not do teams. What is important for God's people is right relationship to him. 
I think the third question that this provokes when we see pagans shaming God's people is what exactly does God need? Like here we are, we're God's people and we're doing things pretty badly, but it seems like God's doing something with those pagans. Doesn't he need us to do stuff? Jonah might have thought that his rebellion would prevent God's mercy toward the Ninevites. I mean, certainly, he says in chapter 4, that he refused because he was afraid that God would show them mercy. And maybe he just thought, I didn't want to be there to see it. But he might have thought to himself, if I don't go, God can't do this terrible thing that he's going to do. God can't spare these wicked people from the judgment that they deserve. So I'm out of here. God is not even inconvenienced by Jonah's refusal. Instead, he just scoops up some random group of Canaanite sailors and sends them as missionaries to his missionary. That's how little God is constrained. God does not need us to do anything. There is no situation in which we say, well, we have to do this or God can't fill in the blank. God is free. The book of Esther reminds us that God will always do his work with or without us. And yet to his people, God extends the invitation to be the ones who carry out his work. Jonah thinks that he has to rebel against God to preserve his nation's status and his power. But if we turn away from God in this way, we only harm ourselves. We don't do anything to God's plans. And finally, I think it provokes the question when we see pagan people shaming God's people through their action, it provokes the question, what is it that God is actually doing in human life? What, what is God's plan? It makes us question what God's plan is at all because Jonah has this idea that God's plan should be anyway for Israel to be strong and free of, of Assyria. This causes us to face the truth that God cares very greatly for people's spiritual health. Whether it's people who are super far from him, like the Assyrians and the sailors, or whether it's people who are close, like Jonah. Jonah's job is not to build up and preserve nation and culture. Because God's work is not to build up and preserve nation and culture. But it's to preserve people who call on him and follow him. Whatever nation or culture they come from. When God's people value things other than this, he will act to redirect our attention to what really matters. God's goal is to bring people to himself spiritually. And that should be our goal as well. I'm going to leave us with one final thought. And something that we uh, don't have time to really dive into in depth, but we can't pass without looking at. You remember, we talked about this a little bit last week, that our Lord, when he was on the earth, said that the only sign that would be given to people was the sign of the prophet Jonah. The only sign demonstrating his divinity. 
it turns out that there are many, many ways that Jonah reflects as though in a funhouse mirror the nature of Jesus Christ. And this is one of them because you can think probably of a very familiar story of Jesus sleeping in a boat in a storm. And nothing could be more different than than Jonah is here from Jesus. Jonah is the rebellious messenger. He's sleeping because he's hiding from God's judgment. And in his sleep, he endangers everyone who's around him by refusing to speak God's words. And here's Jesus. Jesus is not the rebellious messenger. Jesus is a faithful messenger. The one who's sleeping because he's exhausted from doing God's work. And in his sleep, he does not endanger people who are around him. He ensures their safety. As he communicates God's words when he's, before he falls asleep and when he awakens. Jesus, sleeping in the storm, is everything that Jonah is not. Jonah throws his life away in desperation. And God uses him to save the sailors anyway. Jesus gives his life up as a sacrifice. And in doing so, God extends salvation to every person from now into the future and into the past. In fact, these sailors, though they certainly did not know it, were reconciled to God, not through the sacrifice of Jonah. That was a little temporary thing that God used to bring them to himself, but through the sacrifice of Christ. And this is God's purpose. Whatever Jonah is not, however Jonah shames God's people and embarrasses even the first listeners who would have sat and heard this book read and explained to them, and they would have thought, oh, it's terrible. These Gentiles are better than us. However Jonah goes out of the way and, and does what's wrong, Jesus reconciles. Jesus brings back, not to show that Israel is the greatest, that God's people are the best, that everyone else can just take a hike, but to show that all people are God's people. To show that God extends his saving grace to everyone. Let's pray.